Okay. I know he just prayed, but I also want to pray. Get in the mood here. Get myself in focused. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for a room full of believers, people who have been redeemed by you. You are our Savior, God, and you say through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43 that you love us and that you are our Savior and that whenever we pass through the waters that we will not be overwhelmed, but you will be with us in all circumstances, God. And I pray that tonight this will be for your glory alone and not for mine personally as I bring the word. But Lord, I pray that you will use me and you'll speak through me so that the people here at First Baptist Church of Fairdale can know more about you and grow in their love that they have for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, we know that all things happen for a reason, right? We know this saying, and it's typically used by us as believers, but not just believers, even non-believers will say this. All things happen for a reason. And sometimes we feel like we can understand why something happens. We usually use this saying whenever something bad happens, we're in bad circumstances, we would say that all things happen for a reason as a way to kind of cope with what's going on. But is the gap between humans and God so small that if we thought for just a bit that we could understand him, that we understand what he's doing? See, when God works things out, he's thinking about so many different things. He goes far beyond us. We cannot possibly understand everything that God is doing. And you, we even hear people saying things like, I don't understand why God would do something like this or why God would let something like this happen. But this implies that we can think of something better. That we can think of something better than what God has. When we say things like, I don't understand why God would do this. And this is arrogance, right? We can't think of something better than what God has. God says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than yours. And as we study the passage tonight, Ephesians chapter 1, there will be things that go beyond our understanding and therefore will not make sense to us if brought to their conclusions. But Ephesians 1 is the word of God and therefore it is true. Everything in the word of God is true, even if we don't understand it. So, as we try to understand Ephesians chapter 1 tonight, then we need to remember that we can't fully understand everything that's here, but we must try to understand as much as we can. But there will come a time when we are glorified and we can better understand the truths that are found in Ephesians 1 and throughout the Bible as a whole. So, as I read Ephesians 1, um, verses 3 through 14, there's going to be a lot of truths in here that are really hard to understand. And I'm going to read it out and just try to pay attention and try to get and understand what's going on here. So, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In, you, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> we see that the word mystery is used in verse 9, but we need the rest of this passage to reveal what the mystery is. As we get through the points that I prepared, the mystery of God's will should become clear. So that's the focus of the scripture tonight is the mystery of God's will. And so the first point I have is that God had a plan from the beginning. Before there was anything, there was God. Before there was the world, the stars, the other planets, before there was even empty space, there was God. And do you ever try to wrap your mind around that? God is the beginning. That's what it says in Scripture, that he himself is the beginning. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Revelation 22, 13, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If we could put the universe on a giant timeline, we would have, we would have like the formation of the heavens and the earth, the very beginning of the timeline, and then before that, you would have God being God. He is eternal, sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, the embodiment of love, mercy, and justice. And this is who he is before the foundation of the world. And he had a plan to reveal that to us, to reveal himself to us so that we can see his attributes and who he is. He was who he is before there was anything. He always is. In verse 4 of this chapter... It says that he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So we see God is acting even before there is anything. And what is he doing? He's gathering his people. He's choosing us before the foundation of the world. So that brings us to the point two. We were a part of God's plan from the beginning. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he chose us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. So, not only is he choosing us before the foundation of the world, but what he had in mind is that he would adopt us as his sons. This is before the foundation of the world. He already knew that he was going to adopt us. And I know we have a lot of families in here who are into adoption and fostering, stuff like that, and that's awesome. Um, but do you adopt kids that are your own? They first have to be not your kids, and then you bring them into your family and make them your kids. So that implies that before the foundation of the world, God knew that there would be something that would separate us from him. Therefore, at some point, we would not be his children 
and he would have to adopt this into his family. <clears throat> so what was it that separated us from him? We know what happened. Genesis chapter 3, mankind is cursed when the first people disobeyed God. And this caused a separation that mankind cannot put back together. There's nothing that man can do to bring themselves back to God after they fall. And we are by nature children of wrath, is what the scripture says. In Ephesians chapter 2 is where we get that. Let me read the first few verses of the chapter. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we were children of wrath, but not children of God. And then it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. <clears throat> and if we zoom over to the first verse, or verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is God inducting us into his family. Our spiritual blessing is being a part of God's family. And um, quick, interesting fact of the day, Heavenly places right here does not necessarily mean heaven. Um, whenever I was studying the sermon and getting this ready, I found out, read in a commentary, that whenever it says, whenever Paul says heavenly places in Ephesians, he typically means the whole spiritual realm, and he doesn't just mean like heaven. So before this, I, when you hear, when I would hear heavenly places, I would think heaven, like just different levels of heaven or something. It was just ambiguous, but I thought it was just heaven. But we get this because in uh, chapter 6, verse 12 of Ephesians, Paul talks about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if there's spiritual forces of evil in heaven, then we have more problems we have to deal with here. So we're going to move to uh, point three. Jesus Christ was a part of God's plan from the beginning. Two, we were a part of God's plan from the beginning. Three, Jesus Christ was a part of God's plan from the beginning. Verse four, back to verse four, he chose us in him, being Jesus before the foundation of the world. Verse five, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse six, he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus. Seven, in him we have redemption. In verse nine, his purpose which he set forth in Christ, and so on. After examining this passage we have today, it becomes obvious that God set forth his plan in Jesus Christ before the world existed. The Christ was always meant to save his people, those that were to be adopted into the family of God. Therefore, his people were always meant to need saving. In other words, sin was not a mistake. It was not God saying, oh man, they have sinned, I did not see this coming. Now I have to try to make a different plan and make this work. It was not a surprise. It was not a mistake, but a part of God's plan as well. If there is no sin, then there is no Savior. So from before time, Christ was a part of God's plan. And we even see throughout the whole Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, that there is a portrait of Jesus being painted 
We remember the story of the men on the road to Emmaus when they are discussing about how they thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah, but he died three days ago, and now they're all disappointed that Jesus walks up on them, and he opens their mind to understand the scriptures, being the Old Testament at the time, that it was necessary for the Christ to die and then later be raised for the sake of his people. And so we see from Genesis all the way to Malachi, over and over again, Jesus is the center of it all. It's constantly about Jesus. What's my spot? So Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the sacrifice that we need. He's the sacrifice that was portrayed in the Old Testament being we, they would sacrifice lambs and, and goats and all these different animals over and over again throughout the Old Testament, but it was just an image of portraying that there would become one, the Savior, the Messiah King, who would be the Lamb of God. And we see in what Josh was talking about today, the, when John the Baptist was at the river and he sees Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is him. So Jesus is at the center of everything, and we also see an emphasis on God's praise and glory at the same time in Ephesians, which might seem like a paradox, because the Trinity is one of those things that don't really fit in our minds too well. It's really a hard concept to kind of grasp. So Jesus is at the center of everything, and at the same time, God is for his glory. But we believe that the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, God gets glory through Jesus being the center of everything because Jesus is God. And so, if you understand that, we'll talk again when we're glorified. So, we get to point four. God's will is that he be glorified in all things through Jesus. God's will is that he be glorified in all things through Jesus. Verse 6 in the passage we see that he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ for the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God's number one concern is that he be glorified. He predestined us for adoptions through Jesus. Why? For the praise of his glorious grace and for the praise of his glory. And Ephesians 1 isn't the only place that shows us this. Ezekiel 36, 22 says, Therefore I say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. And then Isaiah 43, 6-7, the call to worship also says similar things. And to think that everything exists for God's glory is a hard truth to swallow for many. It's understandable. But I would argue that it is absolutely necessary for all things to exist for his glory. It's necessary. Josh Womble recently gave a great analogy that pertains to this that I'm sure he got from someone else, but I don't know who it was. He said, All things must rotate around God as all things in our solar system must rotate around the sun. If the earth or any planet were put in the center of the solar system, then our solar system would collapse. If the sun were a person, then the most loving thing that person could do 
would be to stay at the center of the solar system. Who deserves more glory than God? For God to glorify another that does not deserve it, then he would be committing idolatry himself. He deserves all the glory. We can't name anyone that deserves more glory than God. Therefore, God has to uh, be concerned with his own glory alone. If God must receive all the glory, then it would follow that salvation is due to him alone as well. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we could receive salvation by works at all, then we could receive glory that could have been God's. God has to be the sole provider of salvation and not by any works that we do for God to receive all the glory. And the heart of sin is glorifying oneself instead of God. That's the whole heart of what sin is. It's glorifying yourself, which we are so prone to do. Naturally, we want to glorify ourselves in all that we do. And that is what sin is. Sin is not living to the standard which we are called, which is to glorify God in all things. But where we don't meet the standard, Jesus does. Jesus meets the standard for us in glorifying God and everything he does. This is God's perfect plan. By grace alone, in Christ alone. It's only by grace and it's through Christ that we are saved. In Revelation which I just, or in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, which I just preached on the last time I was preaching here at the church, uh, we see God's plan come to completeness. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, Then I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, proclaiming salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we see this incredible picture that proves everything that Paul is talking about in Ephesians, that Jesus is at the center, he is on the throne, and he is the lamb, and everyone there in attendance knows that it's not because of what they've done that they're there, but it's only due to God on the throne. Salvation belongs to God alone. So nothing, none of them are receiving any glory. They know that the glory is due to him alone. And yet you see that they're totally satisfied and they're singing praises. And so before I conclude with the, with the answer, with the, the understanding of what God's will is, the mystery of God's will, I need to make a point, a fifth point. The Holy Spirit reveals and works God's will in his people. Verses 7 through 9 in summary said, make, says, He makes known to us the mystery of his will in wisdom and insight giving us wisdom and insight to know the mystery of God's will is a work of the Holy Spirit. So here we see the whole Trinity at play. The Holy Spirit is concerned with Christ's glory or Christ being at the center and he reveals the mystery to us. There are verses throughout scripture that talk about God opening eyes and minds to receive the truth. That's Deuteronomy 29, 2-4, Matthew 16, 17, Luke 24, 45. They're all verses about God being responsible for the understanding of his people. And there are even verses about God enabling us to obey him through the work of the Holy Spirit. 
like Jeremiah 31, 33, or Ezekiel 36, 27, which says that I will put my spirit within them and I will cause them to obey my commandments. So God gets glory through the spirit, revealing Jesus at the center of everything. I have here 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's not forget also that the Holy Spirit is God as well. And it can be easy to do since he is always pointing us to Jesus. That's one of the chief concerns of the Holy Spirit is to point us towards Jesus. And in pointing us to Jesus and glorifying Jesus, we, and he is in turn glorifying himself. Trinity. So conclude, this is the truth of the mystery of God's will in Colossians 1.9. We now know that God always planned to be glorified through Christ's redeeming work. We now know that God always planned to be glorified through Christ's redeeming work. And if you want to be actively, if you want to actively be a part of God's will, then glorify God in all that you do because of what he has done for you. We even have verses that say that. Glorify the Lord in all that you do, or in word or deed, or whatever you eat or you drink, everything you do, do to the glory of God. And what's more is that a life that is glorifying to God is a life that is wholly satisfying. It's a beautiful thing. Giving you joy and satisfaction is a means to his glorification. So we're not just robots who are made to glorify him and at the sacrifice of our own joy and satisfaction, but in a part of his magnificent plan that all fits together, us, or us giving him glory in everything that we do also in turn satisfies us. So as John Piper would say, God is most glorified in us and we are most satisfied in him. So from the beginning and until the end, Glory to God alone. That's the mystery. I'll pray. Lord, thank you so much for revealing the mystery to us, revealing your will to us who are in this room today in Fairdale, Kentucky. I pray that everyone in this room has been shaped and has been changed by you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that everyone in here sees Christ on the throne and sees him as worthy and glorious. And I pray that you will be the focal point. You'll be the light and the beacon shining in the darkness when all else fails, Lord. I pray that we will glorify you no matter what and that we will find that life is good in you and that we surely will find that it is good whenever we pass through and we're in eternity with you. Glory to God alone. I pray that you will help us to Simply glorify you in all that we do. And whatever practical means that mean, may, be, may be, Lord, I pray that you'll show us each individually what that looks like in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.